Please open your Bibles to Acts 23. I'll begin reading in verse 12. The reading of the word. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell them. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent." So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea to the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And... On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. The word of the Lord.
Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Again, I want to echo a, a warm welcome. No pun intended. Glad you're with us this morning, and I hope that you do feel welcome, and I hope that it is warm in here. Um, let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 23, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears this morning to see and to hear things otherwise we could not, that you would change us by your spirit uh, so that we may know you more and know ourselves uh, by knowing you more and how you have loved us and saved us through your son, Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, what do you do when right answers aren't enough? What do you do when right answers or correct answers or the truth is not enough? As someone who loved math growing up, and that doesn't mean I was necessarily good at it, I just, I just, I just I did enjoy it, uh, it always bothered me how you could get the right answer to a problem, uh, but you could still get the problem wrong, or at least not get full credit for it, and you know, this happened, I was introduced to this, uh, you know, at least by elementary age, and I was just wondering, what kind of world is this where just getting the right answer isn't enough? And of course, in the world of math, showing your work is what matters. You can't just give the right answer. I don't know. They might have thought somebody could have cheated and just written down the right answer or something. Um, So they required you to show your work. That's math. But I can remember several times discussing with my teacher why it was wrong to not give you full credit. Um, not sure what kind of, you know, worldview they had, but this was the right answer. And of course, this never worked and I never got my way. And that's that. But math is one of those areas where just correct answers, right? Just, uh, you know, the, the, the bare bones of it all isn't sufficient. It's not sufficient. You got to show the work. And in many ways, the work is the answer. Little did I know that much of life uh, would be like this, and not so much uh, in the realm of showing your own work, although that's probably true too, uh, but how getting and giving even the right answers in life, that just isn't sufficient. Uh, your first breakup, where that girl or, girl or boy really just broke your heart, and then somebody came along and said, you know what, there's a better one out there, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, all true, all correct, Uh, I don't want to hear that, though, at this point. That doesn't help me. That is not sufficient. And it only gets more complicated and more serious from there as we grow, right? Right answers as to why a couple can't get pregnant doesn't heal anything. Right answers as to why you lost your job doesn't satisfy. The truth as to why many lost power this week is only going to make you more angry, probably. For much of life, getting the right answers is insufficient. It's unhelpful. We often are left with wanting something more. Well, this morning, as we look at Paul, we are going to be talking about God's providence as we look at this passage, which is uh, another word for his control and his, his governing of all things. It is a tough topic in Scripture because what it also means is that God is, is, is in control of and uh, is in allowing even Uh, both the good things and the bad things that unfold in your life. And as Christians, especially when the bad things start to hit and show up in our life, what what, what happens? We want answers. We want to know why. Why is this the way things had to be? And what I want us to see this morning as it pertains to Paul's life and, and, and God's providence, and hopefully our lives as well, is that God doesn't, and very well often doesn't give his people exhaustive 
all-sufficient answers to life's most difficult questions or why certain things happen the way that they do. Because honestly, I don't think it would satisfy even if he did. Instead, God, by his wisdom and because of his, just who he is, gives us an all-sufficient person, Jesus, to view and to interpret all of life's circumstances that happen to us. We'll see that it is Jesus that tells us that God's providence can't be hindered in any way. We'll see that it's Jesus that tells us that God uses anything and everything to accomplish his purposes and his plans for our good. And we'll see that it's Jesus that tells us that God's providence is from his wise and good heart, even when we don't get the answers that we want for the things that show up in our life. So this morning, I want to do something sort of a little different. I want to review this passage that we looked at. I'm going to kind of go through it, hopefully quickly, sort of in the three scenes that you see printed in your bulletin. We'll see the plot to, to kill Paul, the plot to kill Paul uh, disclosed or revealed, and the plot to kill Paul um, overrun. And then I want to look at just some few, few pieces of application regarding this and regarding God's providence and how we might um, be comforted and encouraged in, in, in life circumstances as we look at this uh, in Paul's life as well. So let's look at that first one, the plot to kill Paul and, 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 and its creation, verse 12 to 15. Um, if you've been traveling along with us, right, if it's not one thing for Paul, it's another. After having his life spared by being pulled from angry Jews at the temple by a Roman tribune, there is now a plot to kill Paul by more, as the text says, more than 40 Jews. Uh, and Luke brings us into this plot here into in verses 12 to 15. Now, before we look at that, let me address an issue that might be on your mind if you've been with us and certainly might, may come up as we move, uh, go forward in Acts, as we see Paul in constant conflict with the Jews. And that is, uh, is the Bible anti-Semitic? Um, much of this section in Acts, and, 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 and that just means, is it, is it, is it anti-Jewish? Is it, is it against Jews? Does it have a problem with Jews? That's what that term means. Because much of what we see in Acts and, and, and what we see being, you know, happening here seems to paint the Jews in a very negative light. And so you might be wondering, what's the deal here? Right. Is the Bible anti-Semitic? Is Christianity anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish? And the answer, of course, is no. Right. The Bible isn't anti-anybody. It doesn't favor or disfavor a, favor a, a people group in that sense. So why the heavy hand here, you might be asking? towards the Jews and, and many other New Testament books, for that matter, towards the Jews as well. Well, for Luke and Acts, in the sake of the birth of the church, the early church here, there is an attempt to document and to show the Roman powers that be just who was causing all the turmoil once the dust settles. And to show the Roman powers, right, that, 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 that these people of the way these Christians, right? these, these folks, these are not the troublemakers, right? These are not the people um, who are uh, wanting to cause riots or wanting to disturb the peace here in Rome. And part of what Luke is doing is he's wanting to document this for future generations. And he wants to document this to the Roman authorities uh, as well, that these people are not at odds with civil authority, Unless, of course, it conflicts with the core Christian value or teaching of Jesus. Rather, they are peaceful people, Luke wants to show. And at the most part, have some interesting, they have some interesting beliefs about God and bodily resurrection. But other than that, right, 
they continue and will continue to be good citizens where they live, where they are. And so as we travel along here, if that's your question, I want to put that at ease. It's not the Bible having anything uh, uh, specifically against the Jewish people, but rather documenting in a very crucial time period of the early church moving forward that, that if it's going to live peacefully under Roman authority, right, it'll be worth its while to prove and show that it's not them causing all this disturbance and all these problems. It's actually somebody else. And so that's Luke's intent, okay? But back to the plot to kill Paul. We read three times in this entire section that what? These Jews made a what? A vow not to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. Now this tells us that these Jews were determined, to say the least, to take Paul's life. And while it is uh, God's will that we do what we say, right? Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. This is an example of a foolish vow. And a foolish vow is a promise that you make that violates something God has already commanded, like killing uh, someone else. You may remember uh, Jephthah's vow in the book of Judges, chapter 11, where he vowed foolishly after returning from victory, uh, after defeating the Ammonites, he just says, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace, right, that shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And of course, who comes out the front door? It's his daughter. And he follows through with the vow. It's an example of a foolish vow. This is one of the most horrific scenes, confusing scenes in the book of Judges. And there are are a lot of them. Another one, though, is a vow made by Herod in Matthew 14 when he promised to give Herodias whatever she desired if she would dance in his presence. And, of course, what did she desire? The head of John the Baptist. There's nothing in Scripture that says you should, what, keep that vow uh, by breaking another law of God. But, again, this is why it's called a foolish vow. And here, the Jews in Acts 23 are doing the same thing again, right? They're making a foolish vow. They are, in effect, using God's word to support their own beliefs and desires. And as one commentary remarks, these vows, the, the foolish vow, is an example of how we may think we are correct when, in fact, we are wrong. The Jews invoked religion to corroborate their earnestness, but they were violating God's will in doing so. So they make this vow. And as we travel on through in verse 14, they conspire with the chief priests and elders, as the text says, to give notice to the Roman tribune to bring Paul down to them as though they were going to determine his case more exactly. And it's here, as they, be, as they bring Paul down, right, that this group of 40 Jews would be waiting in the shadows and jump up and grab him, I don't know, and kill him. Now, this is a very serious claim by Luke to show that it wasn't just some rogue group determined to take out Paul, but it is actually the Sanhedrin. That's what he means when he says chief priests and elders. The Sanhedrin was a powerful group of elders, you might remember, uh, that, that settled in each community, Jewish community, and you went to these elders when there was any type of dispute about the law or about what to do, and they were the ones that brought down the final answer to this. In other words, if there was a group of people you could trust... It would be these people, these elders in this community. So as we look at this plot to kill Paul, it seems like all of the dominoes, as Luke lays them out, are in place for this to happen. You have people who are determined and zealous to take Paul out. You even have people who are involved that are very powerful and have the means to take Paul out. All of the people in in places of authority are involved. And if it were to actually uh, be implemented, what or who would stop it? This is the plot to kill Paul. But let's look now as, as, as Luke turns here to verse 16 to see how the plot to kill Paul is disclosed or revealed. 
while we wonder if anything can truly hinder God's plan, his providence over all things, we learn that, that as a part of God's providence, he uses all things to accomplish his plans for his own glory. He uses what? Big things and small things. And we know this from our own experience. He uses powerful things and insignificant things, especially as we look through um, the multiple uh, examples in Scripture of God using things to accomplish his purposes. But short, there isn't anything that God doesn't use to accomplish his plans. And we see that as an example here in verse 16, when we learn that the plot to kill Paul is disclosed or revealed. And who is it disclosed or revealed by? Well, verse 16 says, none other than the nephew of Paul or his sister's son. Who knew Paul had a sister? I'm not sure I would have known that. It's the only place that we hear this, right? And then who is the son that we, we also read who is able to get to Paul in the barracks? I don't know. So many questions here, right? But Luke doesn't give us any more information, right? He teases us with this to find out later. Like really later, not like later after the sermon. But we, we can't miss though in all this is what? That God uses all things here. Things you didn't even know about. Small things, big things. He uses the seemingly insignificant ones without a name to accomplish his purposes. I love that Paul just says, take this young man, right? Take him uh, to see the tribune. For he has something to tell him. And then in verses 18 to 22, Luke shares the private exchange, right? A summary of that, of course, of what, would have, what that exchange was between the tribune and Paul's nephew, And by the time we get to verse 22, it's the tribune who dismisses the young man, charging him, as the text says, to tell no one that he has informed him of these things. It's at this point, though, that really anything can happen, right? The tribune, what, can go along with what what is being said, or he could choose to ignore what is being said. He, He could decide that, you know what, I'm not risking my own profession and job on the words of this young man and just ignore it, therefore letting uh, the Jews do whatever they want to do. Or he can even get behind it um, and just make, you know, be a part of the enforcing of that plan. Whatever the case may be, it seems that everything is now in the hands of what? A pagan Roman tribune, right? Or is it? Does God use people like this as well? Well, this is the plot to kill Paul revealed. And lastly, we see the plot to kill Paul overturned. Verses 23 to 35. And we see what happens here. We see what the tribune does. He decides that the information is trustworthy, that there really is a plot to kill Paul. And so he doubles down on rescuing Paul, a prisoner in chains at this point. Verse 23 tells us that the tribune calls two centurions and he tells them to ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and, seven, and 200 spearmen, as the text says, and to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night so that Paul might be able to go in front of Felix, the governor of the province at that time, and be heard, have his case. One scholar notes that the to- to- total estimated detachment of troops in Jerusalem was around 600 at the time. That'd be all the Roman troops in Jerusalem at that time, 600. Lysias then, the tribune, therefore, dedicated almost, what, 80% of his forces uh, to the initial cause, all for one man, all to rescue Paul here. Oh, and also, as you note in 24, to provide mounts for Paul to ride safely. So nice of him. 
The plan now was to get Paul out of Jerusalem and to give him, get him escorted to Caesarea where the governor Felix resided. And to do this, he would need to travel some 30 miles uh, to the city of Antipatris, uh, which, where they would stay overnight and they would travel the other 35 miles to Caesarea. These were dangerous roads, so the uh, tribune wanted to make sure Paul was guarded well in case there was any attempts to take him out or, or steal him, to kill him, or whatever it was it would be. This is why he got all of this militia together to do this. Now, before we get teary-eyed over the tribune, right, and his willingness to protect Paul, we will see that much of it, if not all of it, really was selfishly motivated. Let alone, uh, you know, this is the law of, of, of Rome, and so he needs to follow it for his own skin. But when we look back at verses 26 to 30, where Luke gives us sort of a, a summary of what this dialogue, this letter that this tribune uh, wrote, Claudius Lysias, we can read in it that he really is presenting himself in a very favorable light. Maybe you caught this as the text was being read. Verse 26, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when who? I came upon them with my soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Oh, we seem to have forgotten how he was bound first and then how the tribune bound him, had him set for flogging. And only was it that he accidentally found out that he was a Roman citizen, that he stopped the flogging, right? I mean, like, He's definitely putting himself in a good light here. Continuing in verse 28, after desiring to know the charge, not sure if that was really true, for which they were accusing him. Um, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once. Okay, so you can hear this. This is a total stretch of the truth in many ways, leaving out all the bad parts in order to make himself look better. But guess what? God uses this stuff. That's why Luke has it here. He uses this stuff. He uses the brokenness of men to accomplish the beauties. What of his plans? Darwin will share more about Felix next week, I'm sure, but this section ends with Felix after learning that Paul was from the province of Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is from, agreeing to give Paul a hearing when your accusers arrive. But here's the thing. We're going to find out that this is going to be at least five more days for anybody who shows up. And when people do show up, it's not as real accusers. It's, it's these Jews we find out from Asia who are, would, would be from Ephesus. Not, not even the right people um, who were part of this group of 40. But not only that, Paul will remain under arrest in Caesarea for an extra from two more years before he gets his trial, before he gets to Rome. The last time Paul was in Caesarea, he was a free man. Now he was in chains under trial. This is the plot to kill Paul and it being overrun. And this is where it sits. So let me round up this story here with our time left with looking at three things that we can kind of glean from this as it pertains to God's providence. The first thing it teaches us is that God's providence, friends, cannot be hindered in any way. Let me say that again. God's providence can never be hindered in any way. If this story, and and of course many others, teaches us one thing, it's that there is no bigger story, there is no bigger plot, if you will, or plans out there bigger than God's himself. 
Right now, we know that God's plan for Paul is to go to Rome. We were told that. That was back in verse 11 of chapter 23. And, and if this is true, then nothing will hinder that. Not even plans made by, as we looked at, the most determined, zealous, and even the most powerful of people. Now, the thing for Paul is, is he knows this is true, but he doesn't know what, when this is going to happen. He doesn't know how, right? So there's a part of us that has to sit in there with him and recognize that a lot of the questions that you and I might be experiencing on a daily basis, he's probably experiencing too. Two more years, he's going to have to wait before God's promises come to bear in his life, just in this one situation. But the point is, is that what Paul's holding on to, what we must hold on to as well as it pertains to God's providence, is that God's providence is a matter of trusting that there is no greater plot or plan out there than that of the Lord's. And I want to direct you to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you've never cracked that thing and read it, uh, here's a good opportunity to do so. Chapter 5 is on the providence of God. And this is going to be a mouthful, but we're just going to you know, take a little bit of it. I want you to hear this. It says the first part of this is God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. Let me stop there. In other words, there is no plan or plot greater than his is what the confession is saying. But of course, it's saying that because this is the voice of all of Scripture, It says that he upholds, which means he sustains all things. He directs, which means he moves it forward. He also disposes of all things, which means he gets rid of it whenever he's ready and for his own pleasure, whatever it may be. And he governs all, which means there isn't anything or one who governs him. No plot or plan is greater and therefore nothing hinders his providence. My two oldest, Maine and Hardin, when when they were younger, around two and four, as most parents with young kids would do, you get on the floor, you, want to, you play a little wrestling game. And in this particular game that I remember, it was just a simple, they had to try to pin me to the ground. And if they could do that before I actually was able to get up and get to the couch, they would win. But if I got to the couch, I would win. And so at that age, they were so determined to win and to overpower me. It was a lot of fun. Sometimes I won. Sometimes I didn't win, which means I let them win, right? But in either case... Uh, they were never the ones what sustaining, directing, and controlling the game. It was always dad. And when it was time, dad even disposed of it <laughs> or ended the game because his back hurt. But the point is between the three of us, right? At no time was there a greater plot or a greater narrative than mine. And the same is true for God today. Like there's no greater plan or plan. My plans are not greater than his. Your plans are not greater than his. There's no government whose plans are greater than his. And so as we begin to rest in God's providence, trusting and knowing that nothing will hinder it, right, this is one of the first things that we glean, that there is no plot or plan that can overtake what he has foreordained, what he decrees. He sustains it. He upholds it. He governs it. He throws it away whenever he wants to. The second thing that we see here is that God uses anything and everything as well to accomplish his plans. And so as Paul is sort of wrestling with with where he is perhaps and and the circumstances that we've even seen unfold here as he's learning to trust and and rest uh, that that God's plans are superior over all, all things, he's also learning that God uses all things, 
Even an unknown nephew, right, for at least for us, but Paul obviously knew who he was, but even a pagan Roman tribune to accomplish his plans. Again, if God wants Paul in Rome, he's going to get to Rome. But providence never again says, right, here's exactly when that's going to happen. It's not about exhaustive, sufficient answers, in other words. It's about trusting that God's plans are his plans and that they're good and he will accomplish them and he uses all things for those purposes. Going back to the confession, chapter five, right after God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. From the greatest to the least. What does that mean? The significant to the insignificant. The powerful to the powerless. The seconds at your dining room table and just staring off into whatever because you're just done for the day to that big, amazing business merger decision you made or whatever, right? The biggest to the smallest insignificant things. All of that, all of that he uses. He uses good things, but he also uses evil things. He uses our sinful hearts to accomplish his purposes. And this, of all the aspects of God's providence, should encourage us because it means where we don't see a possibility, such as Paul in this jail cell, where we don't see uh, how this is... um, going to be good for us, God sees a possibility. God sees plenty options. Where we don't see a way out, God makes 10, is what this is saying. At the same time, where we don't feel worthy or significant in life, when our life seems to not matter, you literally have no idea how God might be using you in significant ways for the sake of others. And this, the, the, the idea that we could even comprehend that to begin with, which would be direct answers, the answers we want in life, right? we can't comprehend that. So why even bother? But God uses all things. And he uses them for no purpose, uses them for the purpose, excuse me, of your own good, which, and I need to be very clear when I say this, is chiefly tied up in your salvation, which is the main focal point of God's providence in scripture, working all things for good, which is working all things for your salvation. Right, which leads John Calvin to give one of the best quotes that I've read before. I, I'm not, that's just ridiculous. Okay, all this stuff is good, but here's a really good one. He says, A true Christian possesses a consolation which affords him more sweet satisfaction than the greatest wealth or power because he believes that his affairs are so regulated by the Lord, that's providence, as to promote his salvation. What God has done for you, using all things to accomplish his plans, good or bad, insignificant, significant, right? All that is for your good. All of that is tied up and, 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 and moved forward by his governing hand for your salvation. He uses everything. And while that does create more questions for us, um, maybe for now it's enough just to sort of be able to sit there and, and, and sort of hold on to the fact that my life has significance. Wherever you find yourself this morning, right? whatever you think of what you do, right? of course it does. But more than that, your life has significance because God has poured out significance on you by what? By, by dying for you. He's made you your life significant by showing you how valuable and worthy you are. 
for his son to die to secure your own salvation. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that, that, you need to hear that this morning. Lastly, trusting then that nothing can hinder God's providence, the last thing I want to look at, is accepting that it often unfolds in the absence of answers. Understanding that God's providence can't be hindered, right? Uh, Understanding that it's good and true and wise is understanding that often it unfolds in the absence of answers. And here, God doesn't give Paul, as we said, all sufficient answers for the reasons that things happen to him, how things will progress, and when they'll change. Instead, what Paul must trust, that God is wise, and here's the hard one, that he is good. Just like you. Just like you, every day. That he is wise and that he is good. And the good news is that Paul will do that the same way that you and I do that. And it's not by giving him exhaustive, all-sufficient answers because he's an apostle. Instead, it's by giving Paul an all-sufficient person in Jesus Christ to look at and to view and to interpret all other circumstances in his life through. It is Jesus that tells us that God's providence can't be hindered in any way. He is both, what? He, he's he's the, the, the proof of that, and he's the reason for that. It is Jesus that tells us that God uses anything and everything for his purposes, even sin. What is worse in this world than men crucifying God himself? But God uses that for our own salvation? It's Jesus that tells us that God's providence ultimately is from his wise and good counsel. The last part of the confession reads this, according, all this stuff, according to his what? Infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. I told you it's a mouthful. And this is just the first, there's like five others. The first part says this, basically, that things happen the way they happen, as far as coming from God's infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will, because God said so. That's essentially what that means. When we are told that God's providence comes from his infallible foreknowledge and the counsel of his own will, this is a very, uh, this is every parent when their child asks why to go do something when you'd have asked them to clean their room or take out the trash or uh, I don't know, whatever it is, and they say why and you, and you finally just get, because I said so. <laughs> because I said so, right? Now, where I may often be coming from a place of anger and rage, God never does. For an average parent like me, right, that is the answer that houses all answers. It is the answer that comes from our own, right, infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of our own wills. In short, it means, though, you don't need to know why. All you need to know and all that you need to trust is that as your parent, this is what's best for you and what is good. That's what that means. To come from God's infallible foreknowledge and free and immutable counsel of his own will is to know that what he asks of you and what he ordains of you and what he puts in your life, whether you get answers for it or not, is for your own good. The same way a parent would look at a child and say, it is good for you to clean your room. Trust me. But again, what convinces us of this? What convinces us us of this? All of us have these examples in our life that just sit right here where we can't see anything else. What convinces us, us of this? It's not answers. And that's my point. Coming back to the beginning, it's not answers, it's a person. It is Jesus. 
Right? The fact that God, by his own free will, planned to offer up his own son. And he did so for you. And he did so for your children. And he, and he did so for your children's children. This is why, for the Christian, all things, good or bad, blessing or tragedy, must be viewed and interpreted through him. God's plan was not to avoid suffering. When we look through that lens, he suffered. God's plan was not to avoid the lowly because he became lowly. God's plan wasn't to give us exhaustive answers as to why things happen. It was to become the answer that all other questions must be asked. This means in all stations of life, as Eric Raymond writes, that the hand that you and I have been dealt has in fact come from uh, God's own wise and good hand. And why? Because he gave us Jesus. Not an all-sufficient answer, but an all-sufficient person, his own sufficient son, so that his loss might be your gain, so that his suffering might be your glory. Which is ultimately, as we find out, God's glory. Which is why God's providence is always to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. In other words, all of this, all of life, all the things that you experience, all the things that happen to you, everything, right, is for God's glory. And it's not for our own personal glory. And this is where Christians must rejoice. This is the place that we must be able to rejoice in. God's providence is never about what happens uh, to me, the happiness in my own life, or the joy or glory or lack thereof in my own life. It's about his. It's about him receiving that glory. And you know what happens in the midst of that? Something turns on inside of you. A light bulb goes off. Something comes alive because you know that that's actually what you've been created to do. Give him glory in all things. And maybe that's our question for this point and for this sermon. Can we rejoice in that? Whatever tragedies have come your way, whatever things have not worked out for you, does it warm your soul to know that all those things, whether you understand it or not, are working for his good and for his glory? That Christians are to be the ones to stand up and say, yea and amen, not me, but him. Not me, but him. This is what we will see and continue. This is what, what must, must be true for Paul. But what also we, must, we will continue to see in his life as we move forward. What do you do then when right answers are not enough? When they are insignificant, or insufficient, when they don't satisfy, when they are not able to be understood even if we could be given them You look to a person, friends. You look to a person. To Jesus that tells us that God's providence can never be hindered. To Jesus that shows us that God uses all things to accomplish his plans. But to Jesus because it shows us that God's providence comes from his wise and good hand. This will have to be good enough for Paul in the coming years. And I pray that it will be good enough for us too. But friends, not just good enough, not just good enough, but that the more we look at this all-sufficient person, the more we can't help but rejoice to stand and say, to God be the glory. That's my prayer. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word to us. We give you thanks for Luke's recording of what seems to be sort of a mundane scene here. But there's, there's so much in it to see how you work, how we can trust you, to know how to trust you when we're afraid. How do we carry our doubts and our questions in one hand, but, but trust your goodness in another? Is that even okay? And I'm thankful that we get glimpses of these heroes of the faith, such as Paul or even Peter or whoever it may be, where we get to see the humanness of their lives, where we get to see it doesn't all work out perfectly for them either. But that's not what they're holding on to, not answers to the reasons why things are the way they are, but rather they are pointing us to the sufficient person you've given to understand and see and believe all things. Would you do that for us wherever we find ourselves this morning? Would you show us Jesus in new and in beautiful ways that would strengthen us, that would encourage us, and that would bring us to a place of wanting to rejoice in you in all things? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.